Hello, happy Christmas to everybody here, everybody watching at home, everybody watching this sometime in the distant future. They want to see what life was like in Britain. <laughs> the, uh, end of the Tory years. Um, uh, welcome to traditional Oh God What Now Christmas show at a brand new venue, the Comedy Store. Thank you very much for having us. A uh, fun fact, it opened on the 19th of May 1979, just 16 days after Margaret Thatcher was elected. <laughs> and it says here, brought meaningful change by setting loose our natural entrepreneurialism. We want to talk about that. Uh, today we have a two-part show. First, how did Rishi Sunak blow it? Um, if you don't think Rishi Sunak blew it, <laughs> you're in the wrong place. And this may be our last Tory Christmas for some years. Uh, and in part two, what can we expect or hope for from the next <laughs> Labour government? And then everyone on the panel will choose their newsmaker of the year. Uh, let's say hello to the panel. We have the two Velvet Voice members of the original Romaniacs team. <laughs> he can act, he can sing, he can cook, he can bear to watch more politics TV than anyone else in Britain. <laughs> uh, Alexandre. <laughs> Loving this vibe. I feel we should do a boy zone number. We have a ballad. Euphemism. Uh, <laughs> next up, a stalwart of Oh Got What Now and Romaniacs also hosts The Bunker and her very own series Jam Tomorrow. It's Ros Taylor. Guess. We really wanted uh, a national treasure whose voice is always a delight on the radio. Uh, Robert Jenrick had to pull out. So, stepping in at the last minute, we have LBC megastar and best-selling author James O'Brien. So, to refresh your memories, um, Rishi Sunak is the Prime Minister, um, <laughs> appointed in October 22 during a, a bit of a hullabaloo with the economy. Um, he told us he'd been brought in to sort out the mess. Uh, at various points he's been the change candidate, the motorist's friend, the plain speaking tough guy, Mr. Long Term Decisions and the woke basher. Uh, but now he's adopted a more familiar role, trying to herd Tory cats while being more than 20 points behind in the polls. <laughs> his personal approval rating now matches his party's minus 49. <laughs> this man used to be the most popular chancellor since Dennis Healy, and the most popular politician at all since Tony Blair. How do you get up in the morning? <laughs> what, how do I? How, no, how does he get up in the morning? Yeah, it's not been great. It's not been the best bit of his career, has it? Uh, so we'll start with this week. Um, he's just won a vote on the second reading of the Rwanda bill, which has somehow become his flagship policy. Um, 30 headbangers abstained because it was insufficiently inhumane, unworkable and law-breaking. The next showdown will be in January. Alex, a humiliating rebellion, rebellion, rebellion was predicted. Um, unfortunately, it did not happen. It was humiliating for the rebels. Humiliating for everyone else. Yeah. To win over the absurdly named five families of the rebels. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when they give themselves names. Yeah. It's like most people at this time of year think one family is, you know, enough. But the Tories, <laughs> five. 
it's better than the Spartans. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. It was really cool. It's like it, people trying to give themselves same. like a rat name or something. Uh, Alex will know more about this than I would, but the Spartans used to throw sort of unhealthy and uh, poor contributors to a society off cliffs, which would be Marc Francois fucked from the Spartans. <laughs> So, come January, he has to toughen up the bill to appeal to the five families. Uh, at which point... <laughs> at which point the One Nation Tories, which is, uh, they're allowed to call themselves that, um, will back away. So, what do you think is going to happen? Who's going to cave in? Nothing's going to happen. <laughs> Sorry, uh, they will make a lot of noise again and in the end vote for it. Because um, it's what they do. We, I think we, we over-project because of the Brexit experience. But there, there are two like really fundamental differences. The first is that Sunak has a much bigger majority than May had. So it's much harder. He's to, working on that, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he certainly is. Anyone by elections? Um, Peter Bone, I think, is coming up. Um, but the, the second, more fundamental difference is that this isn't a one off. Brexit deal, if, you, if a Brexit deal went through, that would be the Brexit deal. This, they can keep banking. I mean, this is the third piece of legislation. They can just keep banking bits of legislation that are crueler and crueler and crueler that take them all the time closer to their aim, which is to pull out of everything, basically to just splendid isolation. So why would they turn this down? They wouldn't, because if they turn this down, they, they get further away from their goal of pulling out of the ECHR. While by accepting it, knowing it will fail, they get closer to saying, we told you, now you've got to do the next bit. But the One Nation Tories are famously resilient and strong spine. Yes. <laughs> Spartans, I think. <laughs> So they'll put up a fight. Uh, Ron, so how did Sunak end up pinning his authority on a policy which Boris Johnson cooked up as a wheeze to distract from all of his many problems? Like, why has this become the do or die, even in the best case scenario, an immensely expensive way of sending a very small number of people to another country? Well, this is what happens when you come up with five pledges at the start of the year and you realise that you're going to struggle to meet one of them and maybe meet one of them just about through, you know, lucky, lucky uh, uh, timing of electricity and gas bills. And you realise that you'd really better stick with one and you haven't stopped the votes. So you've got to do something that will allegedly stop the votes in the future. I, mean, that's the, I think that's the, the most obvious reason. But the, the other, I think it's wider than that. It's that it's such a performatively cruel policy and crucially, it outsources that cruelty to another country. And, you know, it's, it's putting it out of sight and they hope out of mind. I mean, this is the whole thing about Rwanda. We can, we can guess at what's going to happen to, these, to these people when they end up in, in Rwanda. Um, and yet it will be extremely hard to know exactly what's going on if that happens. Because the Rwandan government and the freedom of press, I don't know if you know anything about freedom of press in Rwanda, but there's no chance of anybody being able to cover it properly. It is, it is uh, impossible to imagine that we will ever get at the truth of what, what happens to them. So it is, it is just shoving something out of the way and hoping that that is, is satisfies. And, and, and it's the, pr the problem comes from the fact that the boats are so visible to people. 
people only really started coming over in large numbers in boats a few, you know, after Brexit because it was became more difficult to come over in a in a more in a less visible way in lorries. So they switched to the boats. But it was happening back then. But because it's the boats, we've got to stop it. So well, I can only remember two of his five pledges, and that's one of them. <laughs> Which other one can you remember? Uh, the the half inflation. All right. Uh, yeah, cut in each as waiting. Really That's not going well. I really, you could put me, you know, in a Rwandan prison cell, and I could not tell you the other three. Um, James, a historian and friend of the pod, Robert Saunders, complained that the coverage of this bill has been too much like sports reporting. It's all who wins and who loses, and what does it mean for Sunak, and really very little about what it means for asylum seekers and Britain's reputation abroad. Do you think that's just a, a general problem with the coverage of uh, this government? Yes, um, I've got. <laughs> I have a bit Thanks more. Thanks for I have a bit more. <laughs> Am I being paid by the word? <laughs> um, I, I saw that tweet, and a, a quite common experience for me is that I felt a sort of frisson of, sh of shame because I think I fell into that trap this morning as well. It's, it's, we, we all like gossip, and talking about, you know, the, the, the I mean, the sheer volume of shit that Sunak is in at the moment is is actually quite an enjoyable pastime. Um, <laughs> And it does, of course, distract you from the, 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 I mean, the harsher realities of what this policy means. But I, I think I'd defend some of the media against Robert's accusation on two fronts. The, the first would be that it is highly unlikely ever to happen. Um, I hope that doesn't come as a major shock to anybody <laughs> in the room, but Suella Braverman's fever dreams about Daily Telegraph front pages detailing the deportation of, of, of asylum seekers to Rwanda is, I think, unlikely to appear in the, in the near future and possibly in, in any future at all. And, and, and the second uh, front is that, it, it, as you've just alluded to, it does matter domestically. The performative cruelty that Ros talks about, the, the, the deliberate nastiness that you've both referred to, that's a really important domestic political issue. It's an important social issue. It's, a, you know, it's an important democratic issue. And, and, and that's why the question of why Sunak has stapled himself to this policy uh, so completely is, I think, very hard to answer, mm. unless it is about the arithmetic of Suella Braverman's support during that final push for the leadership when I think Johnson thought he was in with a shout. Astonishing though that is, yeah. within 15 minutes of being shown the door, he thought there was a way back in. Paul Dacre still wants a, a seat in the House of Lords, so he got the Daily Mail's backing in his back pocket and Braverman became like the Earl of Warwick. Braverman became the kingmaker and, and, it, it, and that's why he had to um, deliver or at least pretend that he was preparing to deliver on this hideous, hideous policy. So I think Robert Saunders is, is right and wrong. And one more thing briefly is that in, in some ways it doesn't matter what happens to the, asi to, uh, to the asylum seekers from their point of view, to the, to the refugees. Uh, Michael Esowami, who, who has died on that hideous barge, the, the Bibby Stockholm, I had a little look at what racists were saying on Twitter earlier and they're saying that he wasn't a doctor and they're saying that it, it wasn't true and they're saying that Cameroon is a safe country so that the narrative of, of cruelty to the people to whom they are appealing mm. is meaningless because the crueler it is the, the, the more they like it. Cameroon just for the record because I looked it up is, is and I've got no idea of the details of Michael's death of course but Cameroon is a country where it's still illegal to be gay so that's just one reason why you might be seeking asylum in, in So the racists on Twitter were wrong. <laughs> is the title of my next book. <laughs> I don't think it would sell quite as well. 
Everyone hates those guys. Um, <laughs> Alex, briefly, because uh, you're our COVID inquiry expert. I am. You actually I'm the COVID desk. Soon as the Watergate quantities that I don't recall, when he could recall things, like how did he fare? Um, he did okay. I mean, it's the eat out to help out thing that will continue to haunt him because it, it's, you know, at a time they were claiming they were following the science, he didn't even ask the science, let alone follow it. He did, they did, the science didn't know until the day it was announced. The science was like, what the fuck, man? You meant to follow me. Um, Yes, science in the mean with a sort of fiance. Eat out to help out is the woman going that way. So that that bit is not gonna go away. And I got the distinct impression from the judge and counsel that by that point they'd had Hancock. Um, Johnson and then Sunak and they were like we're not going to get anything out of these mm. guys mm. she was literally like hurrying him on because it's like look you know we've got the evidence mm. to hang him um, what's the point of giving him another hour to say I don't recall if I recall <laughs> he, at one point he said if I had a recollection I don't recollect it <laughs> which I yeah, it's it, a country song. It almost rivaled Johnson's the week before when he said, when he said if I ever knew this, I've forgotten it. Uh, Ross, let us rewind the clock um, to when Sunak came in. Um, he uh, scored a sort of an early-ish win uh, with the Windsor framework, which everyone, I'm sure, was a big big fan of. Um, deal with the EU, he seemed to be not Liz Truss, which was a big... To be fair, he's still not Liz Truss. Um, did he have the makings of a comeback? Because obviously pundits don't like to say, look, the Tories are doomed. Um, so they do like to go, oh, he's very likeable, he's very popular, yada yada. Did you ever feel like, oh, he could sort of turn this uh, ship around? No. <laughs> I didn't. Um, you know, the Windsor framework, yeah, it was great. I mean, obviously, it's, it's fantastic that Northern Ireland can continue to import and export goods. That's brilliant. But that's kind of, you know, basic entry-level stuff, isn't it? And, you know, he also sorted out Horizon. Good. Our research scientists can work with European research scientists. Again, you know, what you might term the sort of things that you might expect a government to be backing. Um, and yes, that was a happy contrast with, with uh, Johnson and, uh, the, and, and, and the, the trust era. But, you know, all the time it's just been doing stuff that is broadly sensible. And that, for me, does not really meet the, meet the requirement for comeback. Well, things started to sort of go wrong, I think. Um, at least psychologically, when uh, 20th of July, the Tories lost two elections, but one won in Uxbridge by a whopping 495 votes. Uh, Sunak drew the obvious conclusion that air pollution is great. Uh, that climate change doesn't matter, despite what he had said just a few months earlier at COP27. Um, was this the kind of victory that drives the winners mad? You know, like, just, just he would have been better if he, they'd lost Uxbridge. He took entirely the wrong lesson from Uxbridge. 
he took the lesson that uh, people didn't want the government to uh, spend money on renewables and uh, trying to stop global warming. In fact, the lesson of Uxbridge was that people didn't necessarily want to spend their own money directly on doing these things, but they were really quite keen on the government doing it for them. And you know, without wishing to be too cynical, that, that tends to be the pattern, unfortunately. If you, can, if you can frame it as government expenditure rather than individual expenditure, it tends to go down slightly better. And so he, he went, yeah, full on on the, on the whole, uh, I suppose we used to call it culture wars, but I suppose now you call it green wars. Or, and he, he, he went, decided to go down that road and uh, fully in, in, in pick up all the, all the uh, climate change deniers. But it's, yeah, it's, Uxbridge is a weird one because it, I, I heard today that Andy Burnham has announced his plans for Manchester's clean air zone. And Manchester's clean air zone isn't going to involve anyone paying any levies or any extra money. No, 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 no. So that has, is a lesson that has been learned and has well, been absorbed by the Labour Party. I mean, to be fair, nor does, nor does Richard, nor does um, Sadiq Khan's in many ways, because the, mm. the triumph of Oxbridge was loads and loads of people who thought they were going to have to pay. And, and of course they don't, and they didn't, yeah. which is why almost overnight the polling has, hmm. has so he's bet the house yeah. on something that was false, which he does quite a lot. Because the, the cars are basically politics shows. No, he's really not. not. The cars are too new or too old, yes. aren't they? If, got, if they'd come out and said, if you own a 1987 yeah. Kia, yeah. you'll have to pay a bit. Just that, just that just one that. car. <laughs> this would have been all right. And, and people, I, I speak to people, obviously, every Day. Well, we all do, but I do it on the radio. <laughs> um, and they honestly thought you needed an electric car. You needed like a Sinclair C5 or something to, uh, to, uh, to avoid the ULES charge. Whereas, in fact, I, I've got a mate in, in Uxbridge, runs a t-shirt shop. He paid 800 quid for a second-hand car a couple of years ago, and he's just cashed it in for a three grand payout. So if Labour had gone in on that, if they go, have you got a shitty cheap car? You could be in line for a £3,000 payout. <laughs> Then they'd have, they'd have easily hoovered up the five or 250 votes they needed to go the other way in order to get over the line in Oxbridge. So it's weird how much of the really bad stuff has happened in a very short space of time. A Tory conference in October, it was only October. <laughs> um, Sunak pitched himself as the change candidate against 30 years of misrule, <laughs> more than half of which were under Tory prime ministers. Um, to quote Dodgeball, it was a bold strategy. Did it pay off for him? <laughs> I'm not sure he mentions it. Is he still a change candidate? I think you can say two things with confidence about Rishi Sunak. Is that he is absolutely the person to, to undo the last 13 years of Tory government, and he's definitely delivering stuff. If I hear him say again that we are delivering for the British people, he's worse than Hermes or whatever they call him. <laughs> Delivering for the British people, he, he, he's the bloke that's being filmed on your ring doorbell, wiping his arse with your package, you know, <laughs> throwing it through next door's greenhouse. Or something. It's, just, it's, it's breathtaking, but no, the mystery remains of, of quite how the journey from brain to mouth is is constantly uninterrupted by a sort of bullshit alarm going. No, I can't say this out loud. I, do you know what I think he said today? 
Well, he definitely said it. He said after Starmer's bit about Christmas and peace and goodwill to all men and all of that malarkey, um, Sunak said something like, well, yes, and Christmas is definitely a time for families, and there are now more than ever. <laughs> Under the Conservatives. Under the Conservatives. There are no more families than ever. I mean, was, I think he was making a joke about the, you know, the folk families. <laughs> uh, the gammon beanos. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Say this at a comedy store, but if I were Rishi Sunak, I wouldn't open with that joke. <laughs> Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Ross, he then, at that same conference, he scrapped HS2, pretending that he'd been deliberating up until the last minute, which is very weird, because somebody who looked and sounded like Rishi Sunak had recorded a video <laughs> some days earlier announcing this policy. <laughs> so, from some multiverse uh, shit. Um, what did that, what did that bold decision tell us? Yeah, you go to a disused railway station in Manchester and you tell them they go to axe the main railway line there. It was, it was uh, classic stuff. No, he's not, he's not a man who you feel thrills at the sound of the steam train or the blow of the whistle, is he? He's, he's, not, he's not a train fan. And, you know, generally, he's not an infrastructure fan. It would frighten him. He's never seen one. Well, no, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, the word... What wo- is this? Why, why no rotor blades? <laughs> How is the move? <laughs> Once there's that picture of him harassing an old woman on a bus. <laughs> He's been there like an explorer to be his new housing secretary. Yeah. <laughs> With every prime minister in Britain, I always like to imagine them on a bus. It's quite you know if you if you just sort of imagine that that particular person on a bus and how they behave, you can tell quite a lot about them. Well, that vibe we, we should mention. Um, he's very well off. Um, really? And his wife is extremely well off. And the, the, of course he can go, well, that's got nothing to do with it. Just let me get on with the job. And they go, well, that's another problem. Um, but it does seem to have got to the point, I'm not sure if people saw the hammer video, where he was using the wrong part of the hammer. Now, in the full clip, the woman clearly explains, to do this, you want to use like the side of the hammer. So he was just doing what she said. But the edited clip that made him look like he was so rich that he didn't know how hammers worked <laughs> was so popular that, that people were just like, I choose to ignore this factual context and I choose to believe that he was confused by hammers, buses, contactless uh, payment, contactless yeah. payment um, and that he just lives like Scrooge McDuck. And that does seem to be a problem. But that was a serious question, so I'll give it a serious answer. The answer is it shows he's not interested in big, big projects, not like Boris was. You remember that there was nothing Johnson liked more than promising us some
massive project. You know, there was even that talk of, there was talk of a bridge from England to France. There was the tunnel that was going to go from Northern Ireland to, to, to England. Uh, there was the Garden Bridge, of course. And then there were things that actually happened, uh, like the Routemaster bus. The Thames uh, Airport. The Thames Airport, that was that another one. one that was... Uh, Lord yeah. Moylan's yeah. Um, Lord. Yeah. So, you know, this is, this is partly a Rishi strategy to Don't say... Don't you disrespect no. the purest system. <laughs> Lord Moylan. God help us. Um, I, I love that bridge. I, I, I walk over it every day. God, Do you float across yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Boris liked anything... John, Johnson. Johnson liked anything he could put his name on. Yeah. Um, or his dick in. <laughs> I said to Alex before, I never have a drink when I do public appearances because, <laughs> because I have an inhibition dial that just goes down. If you turn it down one notch, then I say things like that and I, I, I don't feel that I should. I resisted the urge when you talked about Robert Jenrick pulling out earlier. <laughs> This is the urge to say, I think we can all agree that we wish his father had, but that, that's what I mean. So I'll, I'll stop now with the smut, and I'd like to apologise to Sister Mary Francis, who's come along especially this evening, to see me. While we're casting aspersions on uh, Prime Minister's personalities, um, the spat about with the Greek Prime Minister didn't really sort of, you know, matter much, but it did bring out this side of him that is rather sort of peevish and resentful, and the vibe that I get from him, because he was a very successful person before, will probably be very successful wealthy man for the rest of his life after this unfortunate blip. Um, his general attitude is like, this job is actually really very hard, and if you just stopped having a go at me, then perhaps it wouldn't be so difficult. It's not like a great tone, is it? That's a big problem for him. Um, I think people underestimate just how different a world truly uber-rich people mm. live in. You know, he, he's in an environment where he's not been told no or criticised for anything for years. And, you know, he's just not used to losing not used to not getting his own way, and that... Make it up cost, time. It costs him a lot psychologically, though, I think, which is why... But then the other thing, and I think the more important thing is that, okay, so he was parachuted into a safest of safe Tory seats in 2015, William Hague's old seat. Okay, that was... <laughs> Hello, William. That was, he'd graduated six years before that. Um, he had no political experience whatsoever, okay? But by July 2019, he was still a bag carrier at his first junior, junior, junior job at the, at the Treasury. He was like a parliamentary undersecretary. Mm. He made the coffees, basically. And three years later, he's prime minister. He has zero experience. Follow I mean, your dreams, Alex. Follow your dreams. I mean, contrast that with Alistair uh, Darling. 
may he rest in peace, who was like a lawyer for 20 years. For 15 of those, he was a, a counselor. He then did like a stint at a junior position at the Treasury, then four years at uh, work and pensions, four years at transport, then trade and industry, and he ended up being made Chancellor in 2007 with 35 years solid experience in every department behind him. And, and to me, that points to something really profound, the, you know, there is a corporate culture at the Tory party at the moment. The game is how to get promoted as fast as possible mm. to the highest position possible. The, the question, can I do this job? Or even if we want to get loftier, where might I be able to do some public good? It never enters a fucking head. <laughs> it never features as a consideration, right? It's just, it's not there. And, and that is why I think we have ended up in the in the situation we're it's in. It's just, it's just really untalented, inexperienced people. But as you scrape and scrape and scrape at the bottom of the barrel, like everyone gets a go at being housing secretary. <laughs> you know, they might come to you. Do you fancy it? Give it a go. Give it a go. Yeah. Like, I just think the thing is, if you look at a, a Shaps or a Generic, um, and it, your sort of imposter syndrome just dissolves. <laughs> <laughs> I, probably, I probably could do that. Uh, James, on to party management. His um, name is actually pronounced Generic. <laughs> <laughs> Sunak appointed Suella Braverman, stood by her, only sacked her after she literally drummed up a far-right riot. Um, now she's courting weirdos like Miriam Cates, who appeared at the National Conservative Conference, which we don't have time to get into. We, we got a lot of material out of that back in the, <laughs> at the time. Um, do you feel like he's sort of scared slash pushed around by the Tory right, or beneath his lovable technocratic exterior, <laughs> He's just pretty right-wing, and he, he doesn't have to be pushed into doing the nasty stuff. No, I mean, it could be both, of course. He could be both a, a, a coward and a, um, a, a very unpleasant ideologue. I think the immigration thing is what it, as with so much, is what it boils down to. And you have to be very careful. It's very wrong to suggest that because somebody is the children of immigrants, they must automatically, hmm. therefore, be, be fully signed up with the kind of sensibilities and opinions that most people in this room would have about things like safe routes and, and, and proper immigration systems. It, 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 it's almost racist to say that because you have brown skin, you should agree with me on, on these issues of immigration. But there does seem to be a degree of overcompensation on that wing of the party. There, do, there, there does seem to be a sense from Braverman in particular that she feels that she needs to go further than some of her colleagues do in pursuit of the same, the same goal. For me, Joan Salter was the crucial contributor to this process. She is the Holocaust survivor who stood up at a constituency meeting in Fairham and very measuredly asked Suella Braverman to stop deploying language that reminded her, Joan Salter, of the language that the Nazis used in the 1930s as a precursor to murdering her family. And those are the moments that hit me hardest in the recent political um, movements, because those are the moments where at any other point in British history, that would have been awful. 
for a politician, let alone a Home Secretary, that would have been, and even papers like the Mail yeah. would have gone in. You know, when I interviewed, you find this very hard to believe, but when I interviewed Farage in, in 2014 and he, he got sort of carried out of the studio on a stretcher, <laughs> the, the, the Mail on Sunday and the Sun went for him. The Mail on Sunday commissioned me to write an article about what a shitbag he was, and the Sun said, this is obviously racism. People like Dan Hodges were saying that Farage's career is over. This is, this is you know, the end of the line for him. But you think about where they are now, how they greet his return from, from the jungle. So for, for, for me, that Braverman moment mm. was one of those moments where even being as, as au fait with what has happened and what we've lost in recent years, I still thought, oh, she's done for. You can't, you can't mm. tell a Holocaust survivor to shut up and sit down because they object to the language you're using about refugees. Didn't even, didn't even touch her. Well, you know, power cords, you know, he, yes, well, he, he, he got, you know, shunned by the Tory leader, I think it was Ted Heath at the yeah. time. Whereas Brotherman says power adjacent things yeah. and looks over and Rishi's like, <laughs> yeah, I think, I think power would be on dancing on ice these days rather than in power. <laughs> Um, Ross, nobody wants their old bosses hanging around. Um, Liz Truss has been very, very vocal um, and in complete denial, I would say, um, about the mess she made. And there is always talk of a Boris Johnson comeback, who is his own form of denial. Um, plus you've got people like Braverman already campaigning for the next leadership contest. So to be fair to him for a moment, like with all that competition, um, was he ever going to be more than like the deck chair rearranger <laughs> on the Titanic that there's just, there's something about him that from day one, people were just like, we're just going to carry on with our own, uh, you know, grievances and revenge plots and <laughs> ambitions and sort of act as if you're not going to be around for very long. Well, it speaks to something really interesting about, about Sunak himself and who he is and where he comes from and his background, which is pretty, very, very privileged once he ended up at Winchester and, uh, and Oxford and so on. And yet, as James is saying, he's a second generation migrant. And so he, I think the Tories hoped that he would exemplify something for them, that he would exemplify the kind of British values that enable people to come to this country and make a success of themselves, etc., etc. Grace's daughter equivalent. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, but as a, as a second generation migrant, uh, which adds extra yeah. power to that narrative. But the trouble is he came along at a time when the Conservative Party was basically having the world's biggest identity crisis and continues to have the world's biggest identity identity crisis. Does it want to be a far-right party? Does it want to get into bed with Nigel Farage? Or does it want to be a conservative small C party, like it used to be, a sort of John Major adjacent outfit? Well, that's what it seemed like when Sunak brought back David Cameron, mm. Lord, is he Lord somebody of somebody? I believe he's Lord, though he ought to be Baron. Baron would be better, I think. Baron sounds better with Cameron. <laughs> Seems like a count. <laughs> No, 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 no argument from me. 
Um, but that seemed to be a sort of like, remember this guy? Yeah. He wasn't banging on about immigration every day. Mm-hmm. You know, so it seemed like an identity crisis. Yeah, he's, a, he's, in the, he's in the midst of a party that is in a total, you know, pulling itself, not just the five families, and to be honest, that just sounds more and more mafia every time I think <laughs> about it. Not just the five families, but is pulling in multiple different directions and is just itching to lose that election so it can really go fucking mad. <laughs> I doubt what it is going to be. like that, like a kind of, you just want to, like, you're, you're sort of teetering on the edge Further. of, like, a, a, yeah. you know, blowing a job or a relationship, and you think you should probably try and hold it together, but there's another part of you that just goes, fuck, yeah. fuck, fuck it. Yeah. Just goes mental. And they want to, they've got a taste for it. They've got a taste for it during Brexit. They're getting another taste for it during Rwanda. How far can they go? Wow, what, will, what can we actually get away with? What can we do? And that's very exciting. Yeah, if you're well, into that kind of thing. On one level. Um, I, he could have, but I, think, I still think, I don't know if this is naive, I still think he could have picked a horse and, st- and stayed on it. I, I mean, the Braverman thing possibly hobbled him from the start, but bringing back Cameron was almost as if he wanted to go into the general election saying, all right, if we're going to lose, we're at least going to lose on my, I'm going to be the real me. I, I'm going to actually be the real me. And then if we lose, at least I'll be able to live with myself for the rest of my life. But then he makes estimate vague minister for common sense and sort of throws a... And throws gets everything on the Rwanda policy. Yeah, so and then, and then the Rwanda policy. Yeah, and then you think, okay, he could, he, I'd have abandoned the Rwanda policy. I, I mean, I'd like to venture a theory. Maybe he's just an idiot. That's the point. <laughs> is the point. Eventually... eventually Underpriced, under yeah. I think. I think you're right. I think because he market. made a lot of money and we live in a country that for various reasons... Well, actually, most countries still uh, put unearned deference on people who've made a ton of money. I, I see the Balzac or Tolstoy who said that behind every great crime, behind every great fortune, there's a great crime. And, and there isn't in Sunak's case, unless you think that betting on economic collapse of the country that you then go on to govern is a crime of some sort. It's certainly morally questionable. But the idea that because you've made a ton of money you're, you're, you're a genius or you're a wonderful person is, is, is patently untrue. I know some very wealthy people and a lot of them are twats. <laughs> want really this is the problem with Sunak and this is why he can't you know he we, we don't know what he wants what no. is Sunakism he wants to get the trade doesn't deficit like, yeah. he doesn't like bins <laughs> yeah bins. one bin is enough no he wants to get the trade deficit yeah uh, yeah but there's stop the no, meat tax stop. that's the thing yeah seven bins he doesn't like those what he would laid it all out Ros you just want to listen you know Sunak's dream Britain actually look like that's what I keep asking myself Myself. And you know, maybe the answer is just too frightening for me to contemplate. I don't know. I don't think he knows. Would the no. whole country be a free port? I'm only half joking. <laughs> you could have that. It would. That's why they talked about that. They laugh. It's not a comedy club. It was, <laughs> they, they talked about Singapore on sea with a with a straight face. Admittedly, you know, it was people like Ledsom and, and Dorries talking about not having the first idea what it meant, just saying words that had been repeated to them in meetings and on WhatsApp, and then presenting them as ambitions and policies, like they've been doing since the Brexit referendum was called but for the people who do know what they're talking about the sort of shady background figures and the string pullers and the think tank funders turning us into a, a into a, a, a violently deregulated economy where people with wealth can do whatever the hell they want mm. probably is pretty close to what he would consider to be Sunak's island 
I don't know. Maybe, but then the pandemic came yes. and kind of fucked them because, yes. because suddenly people saw that actually the state does have muscle, that the magic money tree does exist. And that was why he was popular. Yes, yes. because exactly. he was the man from exactly. the government exactly. throwing cash at people. Socialism. I, I, went, I went back to his very first speech as MP, and this is a key section because we're trying to define cynicism. So I will unite our country, not with words, but with action. This government will have integrity, professionalism, and accountability at every level. Feel free, feel free, to, stop feel free to stop me when you get to something that you, know, you think is delivered. The heart of our mandate is our manifesto. We'll deliver in its promise a stronger NHS, better schools, safer street, control of our borders. Do shout out when you're ready. Protecting our environment, supporting our armed forces, leveling up. So I stand here before you, ready to lead our country into the future, to put your needs above politics. <laughs> Together we can achieve incredible things. We will create a future worthy of the sacrifices so many have made and fill tomorrow and every day thereafter with hope. <laughs> me with hope in the sense that I hope you will be gone soon. That's that was beautiful, Alex. Thank you. I think we should all stand up for the key change now. <laughs> Chat, Chat GPT was really busy with that one. <laughs>Rishi Sunak. Um, before the break, we're going to name our newsmakers of the year who shape the headlines for good or ill. Like the time person of the year, this is morally neutral process, so don't <laughs> shout at us um, if it's a bad person. Uh, Alex. So I've gone for Donald Tusk. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm the only crowd in London. <laughs> Right, because Donald Tusk actually is a fairly conventional centre-right politician. Um, and yet I think there is something incredible in being Prime Minister for, for a decade, then being President of the European Council for a decade, and then going back and saying, I'm going to have another go because you feel your country genuinely needs you. Mm. He has nothing to prove to everyone. Um, and then the second reason I choose him is because... You know, he, he was just sworn in as Prime Minister of Poland, a country which in our minds I think we had written off a little bit as lost to the right wing and in that downward yeah, spiral. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he kind of showed that no, you can beat that and the way to do it is to put aside your quibbles and for all the progressives to fucking get together and get their act together and rule in cooperation and compromise. And I think that's a very powerful lesson. And also because I know that Roz loves him and she didn't pick him. So, so I, 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 didn't, I didn't want to, you know, do the obvious thing and just do, have a tusk love him. I thought you'd do a better job of, of that, Alex. And you have. Well, you've gone abstract. Well, it's a creature. A creature. Yeah, I thought we were going to have pictures of this. I'm really disappointed. I thought it was going to be mock-ups of time companies, yeah. but apparently there are. Anyway, never mind. Cheap never skates, mind. Isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it's the ermine. It's a it's a great it's a great little beast. It's a uh, kind of stoat. 
you may probably haven't seen it because they're quite rare and they have to be bred. Anyway, uh, and it's it's basically all the people who have been ennobled this year. Because um, I just wanted to revisit some of them for for you. Because well, well, the house. You know, this is not the most egregious thing that has happened this year. Don't get me wrong. You know, the house. It's it's not it's not Britain's it's not Britain's biggest problem, but it symbolises the rot. But we wouldn't have Lord Baron Cameron without this. We wouldn't have him in a position where he's not even accountable to the Commons because he doesn't sit in it. And let me mention some of the others, if you'll, if you'll allow me. Uh, Lord Hoochin, Ben Hoochin, Tees Valley Mayor, but also a peer. Don't know how that works. How do you get to do those two jobs? Anyway, and the report into the alleged corruption at the uh, red car site that he oversaw, it was due out in the summer. He never appeared. It's being led by Michael Gove, by the way. And then it was due... It was, oh, we can relax now. I know, I know. I was worried for a minute. I know, I know. It's very independent. And then it was due out in mid-December. We're in mid-December. Have you heard any sign of this report yet? Do you think it will seriously come out? Because I, I don't. And then we've got Baroness Owen. Now, I think none of us can be exactly sure exactly why Baroness Owen became Baroness Owen. But I just, I just refer you to the experience section of, of the website, uh, of the House of Lords website, because they have that little menu and it says, you know, roles, experience. And under that it says, oh there is no experience information to show. <laughs> Fantastic. And, that is fantastic. and this is not just bad because these people are bad in themselves. It is because it means stuffing the chamber with all these disgusting cronies means that the House of Lords Appointment as Commission, whose job is to actually put the experts into the House who might be able to scrutinise legislation properly, can't do that because it's so bloated out with mm. political appointees. And so, you know, defenders of the House of Lords will say, well, they do. They're doing very valuable work, and and you know it'll be great in the in the in January, and February when they get hold of legislation, and some of them point out a grandeur, and they point out how bad it is. But it, I don't know how these people can live with themselves going into the Lords when they must know why they're there and their utter unfitness for any role wait, in public wait life. Wait for Liz resignation on this list. We surely will break the system, because the idea that you can run the country for 49 days and then appoint a bunch of your mates from think tanks to be legislators for the rest of their lives, that's surely the point at which the absurdity yes. is... I mean, I would have thought, actually, Charlotte Owen was was perhaps the breaking point. Well, I but mean, the more you look, but, but I understand what Rose is saying, because this committee is probably sitting there going, well, we can't block all of them. Block them all. So, um, <laughs> I mean, who did we let through? This, this nobody that has no experience, or Nadine Doris. Well, Nadine Doris would have got the just, job had she just uh, obliged by stepping down from the Commons well, and so that she could uh, go and be a peer. But for some reason, she, she wouldn't do that. She wanted to go straight from the Commons to the Lords, and so they said no. I don't think you have read the plot. <laughs> Read the plot. Have you read the plot, no. Alex? No. I'm not sure but, uh, Nadine Doris has read the plot. Has she lost it? I have read at least 150 tweets saying, read the <laughs> plot. So I don't hate people who plug their own books on Twitter. <laughs> oh, that's just awful. Um, 
Um, awful. Well, we have a 50-minute break, um, during which time you can read the plot, or change the status quo, um, or get a drink, or um, buy some of our lovely, exclusive new merchandise at the store. Uh, and we will be back in 15 minutes to talk about the other lot. Oh. <laughs>